0: I'm hoping uh, in this panel that we will uh, really focus around three uh, big issues. Uh, One uh, is the humanitarian impacts uh, of COVID-19. The second is a uh, research uh, roadmap uh, that incorporates social and economic development uh, in the path to recovery. And the third is the vital importance of appropriate pandemic uh, preparedness uh, for the future. We have three outstanding global leaders uh, to address these issues. Welcome to each of you uh, and thank you for being here today. Uh, absolutely delighted that you've been able to uh, find the time to, uh, to join us. Now, many of our prior speakers uh, have emphasized the humanitarian issues associated with, co- uh, with COVID-19. And Dr. Christos Christou, Uh, is the international president of Médecins Frontières of Doctors Without Borders. He's also a consultant surgeon uh, who has uh, many many years of uh, field experience uh, working in war, uh, in famine, in situations of epidemic disease uh, and only one year ago uh, took on the role of international president of MSF uh, which uh, as many will know is the world's largest uh, independent medical uh, humanitarian organization. Welcome uh, Christos, thank you so much for joining us. Let me begin uh, by asking you Christos, what do you see, given the discussions that we've had through our presentations, what do you see as the core humanitarian issues uh, today?
1: Thank you, James, and thanks for this opportunity to communicate a few of the key messages that we would like to share with everyone. And in order to answer your question, I think first we have very briefly to go through what we have uh, and been confronted with uh, in the last few uh, months. And the key priorities for us all these previous uh, six months were how to protect the healthcare workers everywhere amid the global uh, shortages of uh, PPEs, how to maintain our ongoing operations wherever possible, while having at the same time to repurpose and reposition our work by launching emergency interventions in support of populations having COVID-19 in several new places all over the world. And uh, last but not least, how to mobilise our resources, our humanitarian workers and our supplies when the whole planet was uh, in strict lockdown. Six months later, and while we still face uh, plenty of these uh, challenges, it's time to, to look back and, uh, and look up, uh, as uh, Dr. Philpot said, uh, to, to, to raise our eyes. And based on our experience as an international humanitarian organisation being always constantly on the front line, I will attempt to, to summarize um, our key messages and answer your question. Uh, message number one, there are Collateral disasters or several crises within this crisis. This pandemic overshadowed every uh, other health topic, but the need for regular medical care does not disappear just because COVID has arrived. Babies will still be born. Vaccines will still be required. The need for life-saving treatment will not disappear. Victims of wars and uh, uh, minorist kids will uh, still need our help. The number of people experiencing potentially life-threatening food insecurity in the developing world is expected to nearly double this year. And with the statistics on domestic violence rocketing in many countries, sexually and gender-based violence service, safe abortion care and mental health will be even more important. So, mental health issues are also letting a lot, so we must therefore strive to see the bigger picture when it comes to COVID-19 and maintain our commitment to humanity beyond borders or any national borders. Uh, the second point is we need to ensure that everyone will have access to safe, effective and affordable diagnostics and medicines as well, not just vaccines. And as the first COVID-19 vaccine will most probably not be the best one, it is crucial that we do not leave the development of better tests and drugs behind. The third point is when it comes to the COVID vaccine itself and has been already mentioned, uh, uh, after the momentum with the launching of the Act Accelerator in April, we got disappointed as MSF towards that each state played an individual card and almost no one speaks anymore of the common good. So solidarity was quickly replaced by selfishness and uh, the solidarity put became a charity basket. <laughs> and last point. Covid became a magnifying glass of what we in MSF are daily confronted with, social violence. All those large-scale social forces, racism, gender inequality, poverty, political violence and war, which very often determine who falls in and who has access to care. So for us, indigenous populations, people on the move, Homeless, prison detainees, elder people in nursing homes are the marginalized majority who should not be neglected or, or excluded. So while we try to look ahead and see what the government should look like, I have two things to share. The one is invest more in public health systems which have been systemically, systematically underfunded the last years, even in the most well-developed countries. So we need to reinforce and rethink of public health we need to relaunch this concept of uh, biosocial understandings of the medical phenomena and find ways to look at the nature of the diseases through multiple lenses, biological, medical, social, environmental. And we need to remember in this that a patient-centered approach is not enough. We need community engagement, which is very crucial. And these are our lessons that we learned also from other outbreaks, with the most recent one, uh, the Ebola. Uh, I will uh, stop here because we will have uh, time to elaborate later, but uh, we should not neglect the humanitarian needs of those most neglected populations, but instead support them by uh, investing more. And uh, this is the only way that we can propose international solidarity against uh, all those narrow, macro-political and egoistic uh, approaches. Thank you very much.
0: Well, Christos, that's a, a great uh, overview and it's also a great segue Uh, to uh, Dr. Stephen Hoffman. Uh, And um, uh, Stephen uh, is a friend and colleague. Uh, He's also the lead uh, uh, or chair, if you will, of the UN Research Roadmap uh, for uh, COVID-19 recovery. Uh, He's also Scientific Director of the Canadian Institute for Population Health and he's Director of the Global Strategy Lab uh, at York University. Um, Stephen, it's a pleasure to have you here with us today. Stephen, how would you define, given, what, given the framing that, that Christos has given us uh, of, of humanitarian needs in the immediate uh, uh, moment, how would you define your uh, uh, role now and the vision, if you will, of the UN research roadmap uh, for COVID-19 recovery? My understanding, Stephen, is that it's really focused on exactly what Christos has emphasized in his last point, which is really the social and the economic structures uh, and systems and processes that are in place, or not in place, um, uh, that, that need to somehow be reconfigured uh, so that we have a much more fair, just, and equitable uh, uh, recovery. Uh, how would you then, given what I've just said, how would you frame what, what, what the recovery map is about?
2: Great, first, um, James, a big thank you for the invitation to be here and the recovery project for this opportunity. The the UN research roadmap for the COVID-19 recovery will ultimately be about making sure that we don't only build back from COVID-19, but that we actually can recover better. In that respect, uh, we know that uh, there's going to be lots of changes and indeed already so many changes around the world. This has been one of the most destabilizing events for people around the world. But we also know that this is then an opportunity to get us onto a better trajectory in order to accelerate progress for all the things that we want to achieve, including and especially the sustainable development goals. And so from that perspective, of course, when we think of a pandemic like COVID-19, our immediate focus is on, for example, getting therapeutics, getting a vaccine developed, effective diagnostics, ensuring their effective energy. And equitably distributed. But at the same time, as Dr. Philpot mentioned, we have to keep our eyes raised and we have to raise our eyes towards that future that we want to build. And so that means that even in the midst of a pandemic, we actually need to be thinking about now, how can we build back better, more equitably, more resiliently, more sustainably so we have that better future. And the key though is that as much as, of course, this rebuilding will require extensive political will, and action, we need to make sure that that action is informed by the best available research evidence that exists, but also new research that needs to be generated to inform these very important questions going forward. And so that's what the UN Research Roadmap for the COVID-19 Recovery is all about. It's all about ensuring that we can leverage the power of science in order to make sure not only that we build back, but actually build back better for the future.
0: Let's. Well, so Stephen, thanks for that, and it's also uh, like Christos's uh, segue to uh, to you. It's also a great segue to uh, to Iona, our next panelist. Uh, Iona Kickbush uh, is uh, <coughs> the founder and chair uh, of the global health C- <coughs> excuse me of the global health center at the Graduate Institute of International uh, uh, Development uh, Studies in Geneva, and she's also a board member of the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board. Um, Iona, in the, the inaugural report uh, last year uh, of the uh, Global Preparedness Monitoring Board, um, it noted very clearly and very, very uh, uh, strongly um, that uh, the systems that we have in place for pandemic preparedness uh, are egregiously inadequate uh, in just in terms of their functionality, but also in terms of the, the financing that's required. Uh, to uh, detect and respond uh, to health emergencies. Um, It also noted that as as, uh, COVID-19 has proven, um, these systems are egregiously and dangerously uh, uh, deficient. We've seen major cutbacks uh, in funding uh, to the WHO uh, over the last uh, couple of years, we've even seen, for example, the Trump administration uh, withdraw support from the for the uh, WHO uh, in the last months. We've seen nations like Canada actually reduce their funding uh, to um, uh, global uh, pandemic preparedness uh, uh, pr- uh, programs that are domestically based, but that interdigitate uh, with the WHO system. So. From your perspective as a board member uh, of the Global Preparedness uh, Monitoring Board, what would you say are the core challenges today uh, in terms of pandemic preparedness for future pandemics?
3: Thank you very much, James, for uh, asking me to join this group, particularly because today we launched our second report from the Global Preparedness uh, Monitoring Board, and its title is A World in Disorder. And that disorder, of course, relates to the big geopolitical challenges we have right now, and you alluded to it. And it's one of the big problems uh, that uh, this pandemic has hit us in the midst uh, of a big geopolitical divide and standoff. And that has many consequences that you've alluded to, including financial consequences, including uh, a decrease in support to multilateralism, uh, particularly uh, through the Trump administration, and, of course, a whole range of uh, financing issues that uh, flow from that. We've done an analysis that uh, actually... um, indicated five big areas where uh, we need to get better and you know in our area we can't say build back better because the system has been so weak, uh, has been so badly financed, uh, has had so little political support that we can't use any of these slogans. Uh, In our own work there has been uh, this um, other slogan of, you know, the cycle of panic and neglect. And if anything, you know, that that describes it better. The five areas that you would find in the report are, first of all, of course, the responsible leadership and many of the political leadership issues I've just sort of hinted at, we might get at that more afterwards, are related to that. But uh, it also means leadership in terms not only of narrowly understood health security, but what we have seen and one of the new slogans we use in our report is that there can be no health security without social security. And our leaders need to realize that we cannot increase social divides. And we also have to be aware of new types of social divides. I'm thinking of the racial divides we have uh, experienced in many of the developed countries, which have been a true tragedy and a scandal, if we can say that. We've spoken in our report about engaged citizenship. Some of my colleagues refer to that. But also we've tried to make the point, uh, it's not just the state or others or public health systems that need to look after us. We as citizens need to look after each other and a solidarity of citizens, if we speak also of social security within communities. And, you know, we in our developed countries thought that the community lessons we learned from Ebola, I think Christos related to that, that they don't apply to us. We thought we were immune. We thought, you know, our communities were just there. We didn't uh, understand what we could learn from Ebola. We, of course, uh, in our report also relate to and it's been mentioned to the national and global systems uh, that we need. Also uh, linked to uh, the fourth point of investment in preparedness that of course includes public health systems. If I think of my own country, Germany, it has just announced 4 billion euro investment in public health. Now, I think that's wonderful, but I wish that had been five or 10 years ago. Thank you very much. Uh, Because I, having been on many of the uh, panels that were established after Ebola, I can only tell you my sense of deja vu uh, is uh, is extraordinary and very, very, very discouraging. Just la- two last points that obviously we refer to, and we will get back to them, is that a number of the international instruments that we have are totally insufficient. We have learned that the IHR is not fit for purpose. We have clearly seen that the ODA financing system is not fit for purpose for pandemic preparedness. We've been talking millions. We need billions, if in some cases not trillions. And I think we need to look at that. We did a calculation based on some other work that we need an investment uh, per annum of five dollars per head uh, to be able to actually uh, move ahead. So what we've called for is a new framework for health security, which obviously includes primary health care and universal health coverage. And we've called on the UN Secretary General to and the heads of international financing institutions to convene a UN summit on global health security where these issues are taken up seriously. No building back, it's only building forward, and it's enormous political commitment that we need.
0: When I listen, thank you, Ayuna, just a very succinct and clear summary. Um, <clears throat> when I listen to the three of you, um, You know it strikes me that that we're really at a a a critical um, juncture uh, uh, in terms of how we think about multilateralism uh, and um, its effectiveness. I don't think there's really any question uh, to any of us uh, here on this panel how absolutely vitally important multilateralism and multilateral institutions are Uh, and I don't think for all of our uh, uh, sometimes public criticisms of of of, of UN uh, agencies. Uh, I don't think any of us on this panel uh, would uh, take a position that the UN is irrelevant and that it is is unnecessary and so on. It's absolutely vital. It's abs- more, Never uh, has it been more necessary uh, since its founding in, in 1945. Um, and yet, functionally, as uh, COVID demonstrates, never has it been more marginalized. Uh, in terms of funding, uh, in terms of political uh, uh, mechanisms, uh, in terms of political process. That said, one of the things that each of you have touched on in in various ways is the importance of community and the importance of citizen engagement, uh, the importance, uh, Stephen, of social and economic systems and structures uh, that allow for uh, mutuality uh, between peoples uh, in, uh, in their communities uh, and across nations, and Christos, you've very briefly alluded to um, uh, the importance of, of uh, supporting community in the response to COVID. Christos, do you want to just touch on that for a moment? Yeah, uh, thanks, Jane. It's not just supporting the community,
1: but uh, uh, from uh, the lessons that we've learned and especially uh, I was referring to Ebola is that uh, we may be missing the the true intervention and how to set it up if we don't engage and if we don't involve the community. It's about co-owning and co-designing the treatment strategies. And um, I don't know if uh, I have to elaborate more on why is this important, but uh, we've been experimenting several years now on uh, putting the patient on the center of what we do. And we realize that even if we look at the needs of the patients and not the needs of the disease, if we treat the patients based on their needs without just... Addressing a, a, a public health issue or a problem like a disease, it is still not enough, because uh, we need to do it uh, within a specific frame, and that's where the whole community comes that can accelerate and also multiply the, the the outcome, the effect, the impact that we will have. And we've noticed also now with the COVID that in many communities, when there was this brilliant collaboration, we overcame the, uh, serious barriers and problems that are related to both uh, misinformation, disinformation, and how to better approach those most in need and those most neglected.
0: Iona, you wanted to jump in a moment ago. Go ahead.
3: Yeah, I wanted to jump in and take issue a little bit with what you said about the marginalization, because I think it also depends on context and where you look from. Because it seems to me, obviously, we know that the Trump administration has uh, put WHO to one side. And it's interesting if we read the new Woodward book uh, on uh, what uh, weak arguments that was done. You mentioned that Canada had also pulled back, etc. What we've seen during the COVID-19 crisis is actually a number of European countries and the European Union doing quite the opposite and saying we need to build and support multilateralism. Germany and France have created an alliance for multilateralism, uh, which also looks at Global Health Canada has actually joined that. And uh, Germany and France have uh, put forward a reform proposal for the World Health Organization The European Union and some other European member states have put forward significant funding for the World Health Organization to partly balance uh, what uh, the Trump administration might pull out uh, of the organization. We'll see what happens in November. So uh, I think in an interesting way, a new dynamics has started. Some of us have said for a long time, Europe needs to be more active. We don't like the word leadership. You know, I keep reading these things about the US is leading, losing leadership and the UK is saying we should take leadership. We want to act in partnership and in solidarity with one another. And we're grappling with things. I think uh, Steve alluded to it and some of the uh, other speakers earlier You know, you can't just in three months create a solidaric structure like COVAX. You you have to work at it. You have to build new legal rules. You actually will need new IP rules in the World Trade Organization. You'll need all kinds of things. But at least, and I'm not trying to be overly optimistic or anything, but at least there are a group of countries and one regional body and partly the African Union as well who are saying we want to move forward here. We no longer also want a UN system that's led by the United States. We want our voice and particularly the countries of the South are saying that and we should listen to them.
0: Well, I think, you know, I think you really touched on a crucially uh, important point uh, for this recovery uh, summit, and particularly for the deliberations that people are engaging in, in advance of of the General Assembly meetings next week. Partnership, partnership is the key to supporting a viable multilateralism. Uh, And uh, I think, you know, when when the Trump administration did withdraw from uh, the WHO, um, we saw immediately uh, Ireland, Europe, uh, the continental Europe, even Canada, and and many uh, uh, nations from the global south immediately step up, uh, and within their means, uh, offer support uh, and and um, uh, political support and financial support uh, for the WHO. So I think on the one hand, uh, what I've said is true. You know, the old way of doing things uh, is no more. And we have now this emergent way, uh, this emergent approach, uh, which in fact, uh, um, uh, I believe uh, truly, truly hopeful uh, in terms of our ability uh, to respond to the COVID pandemic and also in terms of our ability to generate a more viable and effective uh, global public health. Stephen, within that context, just give us a thumbnail of what you think are the priority issues around social and economic uh, development in terms of a research roadmap for the UN. How can that contribute uh, to a more viable and effective uh, global public health?
2: Well, it's clear there's lots of uh, research needs uh, at this time in order to build back um, uh, towards a better, more equitable, resilient, sustainable future. I think that's the key in the sense that uh, we know there's gonna be lots of changes. There's gonna be lots of recovery efforts already happening. So the key is we need new knowledge to figure out how can we make sure that the recovery efforts that we do are not just achieving direct benefits for what they're trying to do, but also at the same time, simultaneously produce co-benefits for equity, resilience, and sustainability. We need a kind of a quadruple bottom line, right? When we're coming to these efforts, it's not enough to have a single outcome. That's just, we just don't have enough time. We don't have enough resources but we don't have enough opportunities like this. And I think that that's one of the things that's really clear in this outbreak that this has been one of the most destabilizing experiences if not the most destabilizing experience for many people. But how can we now make a choice to try to turn this very terrible event into something that can catalyze transformative changes that can let us get to where we wanna be. Because it's not so often that we see, for example, global governance structures uh, reforming of themselves, right? There's lots of institutional stickiness. Uh, political scientists talk about path dependence. What we need to make sure, though, is how can we take full advantage of any kind of shock to our system, both in the sense of how it reveals some problems that have long standing been there but also maybe reveals an opportunity to make some very big differences in how we run our systems. So global governance, for example, I think it's clear uh, from the discussion that our global governance system was not fit for purpose for the kind of challenges that we're increasingly seeing in an interdependent world. We need to make some changes in our global governance system, but that means we also need research that's going to inform what those global governance changes should be. It shouldn't just be based on what we know of from the past. Indeed, the business as usual approaches haven't actually gotten us to where we need to get to. We need new ideas, we need science, we need research about these issues, about global governance, international law, politics, polarization, in order to figure out how do we make changes that will lead to a much better future.
0: So it seems then that that this is a kind of a, a, a pivot point. Uh, we cannot go back uh, to the old way of doing things. Um, and yet to go forward in a meaningful way, uh, we have to engage in new thinking and new practice. Um, the practice I think is uh, in, this, in the context of an emergency, uh, uh, practice is extremely important. Because it's through practice, through what we actually do, that we learn what works and what doesn't work. And so, Stephen, just to give you another opportunity to really um, highlight the agenda that you're setting out um, and the way you're doing it. Um, my understanding is you're seeking uh, to learn um, uh, in an active way uh, so that research findings are quickly Uh, um,
2: turned around and and integrated into current practice. Do you want to just comment on that a little bit? Well, one thing that's clear in this pandemic is that a lot of countries around the world are experimenting with new systems. uh, Some of which are about directly containing the virus. Other times it's about mitigating the socioeconomic impacts that have been caused by the virus or the responses to containing the virus. There's too many natural experiments to not learn from them That is our imperative at this moment, and it's why we need to be thinking about research and recovery now, even though we're still very much focused on the immediate response to the virus. Because if we don't design our recovery efforts in a way to purposefully learn as much as we can, we'll have missed the learning opportunity. And then everyone's worry should be whether we're just going to reproduce the same practices and systems that haven't actually gotten us to where we want to get to. I mean, we know before the pandemic, uh, from all the reports uh, that that come out um, from the UN and from researchers, policymakers around the world that we were not on track to achieve the sustainable development goals by their 2030 deadline. So business as usual gets to a disappointing outcome. How can we use this time and the various things that are happening around the world to maximally learn from them on how to do better? and not che- not take the status quo routes, but actually try to seek transformative change. It's not easy, it requires political will, but it also requires new ideas and new knowledge to get there.
0: Thank you, Stephen. Iona, in the, the, um, the, the new report um, uh, of the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board, which I haven't read in detail, it was just released this morning, um, but in the new report, uh, you emphasize very, very clearly and very strongly uh, the relationship uh, between uh, responsible political leadership uh, and citizenship. Uh, can you just try to illuminate that a little bit for us what does that act, what does that mean uh, in terms of concrete kind of uh, um, uh, initiatives or examples?
3: Well, it uh, implies how political leaders communicate with their citizens and When I say citizens, it means the people living in that country, they won't always, you know, have that passport, and Christos will uh, relate to that. Uh, It uh, implies truth, it implies transparency, it implies explaining uh, things to your population, uh, it implies listening uh, where it's appropriate, Uh, because, you know, it means different levels of governance. Also, again, if I speak of Germany, we have a very decentralized health system. I think you also in Canada. So our premiers at the lender level, at the state level, as we call them, become very, very important. Whereas, you know, initially everyone looked to Merkel, for example, and she was one of the leaders, as we experienced from some others around the world, in South Korea, in New Zealand, in Singapore, etc., who uh, did have, you know, a high level of credibility and who communicated uh, with their citizens. But you know, even that is not enough. If your society already is, um, let me use a term some colleagues have used, socially infected. Because that means if you already have very high levels of inequality, if you have high levels of divisiveness, if you have high levels of racism, etc., you know, with uh, a bit of communication from your leader, uh, you're not going to be able uh, to solve that. And we have found that some leaders have acted more divisive uh, than others and have actually pushed such uh, divisions uh, forward. We've also seen that countries that had very strict austerity measures uh, before the outbreak of the crisis, you know, between the financial um, uh, crises in 2008 and 9. We've seen that in our southern European countries where they cut back on on health systems, etc. But we've also seen it in the UK. And uh, as some people alluded to, you know, this crisis has shown us extreme weaknesses in our societies where we have not acted or our leaders, uh, you know, depending how governments have changed, Uh, have not taken on that uh, notion also of equity, of social protection and of universal health coverage. And then, of course, there's all the other issues around ecology and education, etc. We could go on forever. But I think in our report, we're really trying to highlight that and uh, also indicate um, that yes, uh, some leaders were able to do this better than others because, and this is the last sentence at this stage, uh, because we found that the indicators and the indices we originally had uh, that um, we w- with which we measured preparedness were totally inadequate. You know, which are the two countries that did best on the Global Health Security Index? The United States and the United Kingdom. And compare that with what has been happening in those countries. So goes back to Stephen, you know, we need that research to show us, you know, what do we actually need to measure? What will tell us how prepared we are or where we are not prepared. And I think just like from Ebola, we learned we need anthropology. I think this time around, we're really noticing we need the social sciences, the political sciences, international relations, and of course, economics.
0: Christos, just to segue from that very point, um, MSF and many humanitarian organizations learned some very, very important lessons uh, in uh, in dealing with uh, with the Ebola crisis, around the vital importance of supporting uh, community um, uh, in terms of contact tracing, in terms of care for people who are sick, uh, in terms of uh, ensuring that the kind of interventions that are that are available don't actually drive people who are sick underground and away from uh, healthcare uh, um, uh, services capacity. Can you just talk uh, about what what are some of the lessons uh, and some of the experiences that MSF is having now uh, in terms of COVID and what it's doing now to support community? Unfortunately, the experience that we get now is
1: exactly the same as we get from every single outbreak. That uh, outbreaks and epidemics by their own very nature are divisive and uh, uh, you have to position yourself as a humanitarian organization or as a doctor as a public health expert uh, uh, towards that and uh, try to see how you overcome all these barriers we also learned that uh, it is very important to gain trust and acceptance and again This is the the situation today. In every single uh, context or every single country, I think this is one of the major things. Uh, We are confronted this way or another with um, a, a lot of misinformation and disinformation. And this is another big barrier that we have. And we have to understand how we gain trust, acceptance, and we co-design uh, the interventions. And uh, of course, it has to do with uh, governance. It has to do with uh, what I said initially about uh, rethinking the public health and resocializing the public health. The medical aspect in this is only one thing. Yes, anthropologists, that's what we learned from uh, Ebola and Iona is right, but also now we need sociologists. We need to look at this through several different lenses that we may have missed a lot, especially uh, since the very beginning of this uh, uh, pandemic until very, very recently, unfortunately. And uh, just my last point, because uh, everything goes back to, to Stephen's uh, very good remark of uh, we are missing this global governance. And uh, maybe later on, we will be answering questions by people uh, on uh, what exactly uh, do all uh, leaders have to do at the moment. And it goes back to what you mentioned, Stephen. We need, of course, the data, the evidence to understand what exactly we're missing and what model we have. But the global governance is. Uh, uh, maybe uh, answer to many of the questions that we will have, as uh, it was also for uh, uh, a humanitarian organization that, of course, is not dealing with this huge magnitude that the, 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 the global uh, you know uh, leaders do.
2: I think James, if I may, um, I think your your question and Christo's points um, uh, about uh, what we've learned from Ebola really. Um, gives an opportunity to emphasize Alona's earlier argument that there's too many countries that didn't bother to try to learn from the experience with Ebola, um, 2014 to 2016. And it's to all of our peril. I think for me, one of the lessons that um, we did learn from Ebola, but which was not applied really in any country is remembering that in West Africa, more people actually died from lack of access to maternal newborn and child health services because of stoppages related to the Ebola outbreak than who actually died from Ebola itself. And so what that highlights is a couple of things. One is that when responding to a pandemic like COVID-19, we need to, yes, have our eye on the virus, but we also have to have our eyes on all the other things that make us healthy or not in our society. And so that really emphasizes a need to hone in on the social determinants of health in that, yes, of course, our health is influenced by the kind of health care we can receive, and that's extremely important. But it's even more so our health is determined by the conditions in which we're born, grow, work, and live our lives. And so it's those kind of broader conditions, which includes healthcare, access to healthcare, which we need to be thinking about in the context of a pandemic and also uh, afterwards. And that was a lesson we have not sufficiently taken from the Ebola outbreak, and we could have.
0: Thank you, Stephen. I'll just say to the um, <clears throat> to the technicians, uh, I am on Slido, uh, and uh, I'm just waiting for uh, uh, something to emerge there in terms of the questions uh, that you may or may not have. Um, all of that said, um, we've talked about some of the broad issues, uh, and probably I think the, the the major broad issues in terms of how to think about this this critical pivot point. Uh, what are some of the some of the, the the core concepts that we have to think about in terms of how we go forward one of the other one of the core concepts that that i would just like us to link um, our discussion to uh, is this package of ideas around uh, sustainability around uh, gender equity uh, and around uh, future resilience um, th- the, these this is these are really the the uh, the the kind of core sort of thematics uh, including uh, equity of course uh, of the of the SDGs. Um, do you want to just comment on that uh, Iona uh, and, and where and how uh, uh, does a uh, emboldened pandemic preparedness uh, initiative where and how does that fit uh, in uh, that package of ideas?
3: Well, in a number of ways, and, you know, Dr. Tedros has always said that uh, we shouldn't uh, understand health security or however we call this thing as something separate, but something that is deeply related to our ecological challenges, that's deeply related to building a sustainable health system, that is reliable, that provides equal access, and uh, that is, as I've said earlier, related to social security. And here, you know, you mentioned it when you opened this meeting, uh, the human security concept that uh, has come uh, from Japan and even the Sendai framework that has come from Japan they are things that are absolutely critical to this debate and to you know creating a a new understanding of health security and everything we need to do uh, that in my mind you know also have not received enough uh, attention and actually again if we say you know this spotlight actually shows us where the blind spots of our thinking around preparedness have been and where You know, in our GPMB report, we use uh, the term uh, pandemic proofing. Uh, To actually look at various systems and say, you know, how much have you actually thought about that? And, you know, that can be the banking system, the restaurant system. And something that's very, very close to my heart is the world trade system. I mean, we are now discussing new leadership of the World Trade Organization. Canada will have to decide uh, which uh, candidate to back. And we see now, if we talk global supply chains, if we around, you know, we heard about the vaccine research earlier, about issues around sharing, about intellectual property, around pricing. Uh, so those kinds of issues are going to come to the fore in a totally new way. And of course, Médecins Sans Frontières, with its access project, is totally on board here and is pushing the agenda. So I think, you know, we, we really, we've thought preparedness in such a narrow, narrow way. And we at the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board have also been self-critical. I mean, we didn't select ourselves, obviously, but we said we need a new composition of this board. This board is not good enough in terms of the preparedness challenges uh, we need to face. And that's in terms of global governance is going to be a big challenge also for the International Health Regulations Committee that is meeting right now, that is supposed to look at how these um, regulations should be revisited, reshaped, rewritten. And, you know, unless we get a new understanding of what some colleagues in political science have called smart sovereignty, you know, we're not going to get anywhere. So it needs a push and it needs a push from the global health community. There's been this, you know, sort of thing either you're for UHC or you're for security picking up too much on the American understanding of health security equals national security. No, that's not it. And I think here we really have to create also a new mindset and we have to push for this new thinking.
0: That's a wonderful uh, set of comments, Ayuna. So it seems then that that if we go from the beginning of our discussion to now, um, this idea of partnership around new ideas Um, uh, coalitions of partners, I don't want to say coalitions of the willing, it's a very, has all kinds of intonations, but uh, a coalition of partners um, with a orientation towards a shared prosperity. Uh, This really does seem, uh, at least from the tone of our discussion, this really does seem to be uh, the way forward. Um, Now, certainly the ideas that we've been talking about, these are not just our ideas, These, these ideas have resonance. Uh, in in many societies uh, around the world Um, and uh, and among civil society organizations, among citizens, among uh, some politicians, some inspired leaders. Um, So uh, in terms of momentum, there's very clearly an opportunity here. That said, we're still in the middle uh, um, of a major, major global pandemic. uh, And we still have uh, $11 trillion dollars uh, that have been mobilized by G7 and uh, o- other OECD countries for their domestic uh, needs and quite rightly so i don't i don't chide anyone for for looking after uh, uh, your own community and your own people um, your own families and your own proximate neighbors but we also live uh, in a global world of 7.6 billion people uh, and the funding uh, that has been made available is a pittance uh, for, uh, uh, for OCHA, for example, 10 billion versus 11 trillion. Uh, the funding that the WHO Act uh, uh, platform is seeking is a pittance and yet the payoff uh, would be huge. Uh, uh, they're looking for $35 billion relative to 11 trillion, it's nothing. Uh, it's, it's the cost of a cheap lunch uh, in, in, in relative terms. So we still come now to this very immediate need for funding, uh, how uh, do you think, um, Stephen? Uh, just because, <laughs> uh, how do you how do you think uh, 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 this can be approached uh, um, uh, over the coming week or two uh, at, uh, at the at the General Assembly?
2: Well, it's it's very clear that we need to be thinking differently about uh, global financing, um, and I think that so uh, it really needs to come from that. Recognition that we live in an interdependent world where each of our health is interdependent with the health of other people. And if that's true, then uh, it's actually smart of all of us to be advocating for and championing uh, equity around the world and ensuring that everybody is better off because that's how we're all going to be even better off beyond that. And so I I think that too often we think, we think in our in the worlds in which we see and not the world that we actually live in. Uh, I think that the, the comments from Dr. Bernstein around uh, vaccine nationalism uh, are important in the sense that they really highlight that ideally we all know that the best way of producing and distributing a future COVID-19 vaccine is one that's an equitable way. Where the people who need it the most and who are mounting the frontline response are those who are most vulnerable to this virus are able to get it when they need it, irrespective of, of financial arrangements or what country it gets produced in. But that can become really difficult to steer in the absence of a previously existing global framework for how these things should be distributed and produced. I think right now we're, we're playing catch up and I think it's, it's admirable the work that many people are doing, that United Nations agencies, the World Health Organization are doing uh, in order to try their best to get some equitable distribution of vaccines, for example, and other products. But it really does highlight that we have a, a just a, a very deep problem with the way we've organized our systems and our global systems and they're not working. And financing is, of course, maybe the one that we would look to as uh, being the, the, the tip of what needs to change. But it is only the tip of the iceberg in that we need actually not only financing, we need good governance, we need rules, we need laws that we can count on that countries and other stakeholders will for sure implement so that others can plan accordingly. So in an an interdependent world, it's in all of our benefits to see this happen. We're not yet there, but we need to get there.
0: I would agree, Stephen, that it's the tip of a big iceberg, Um, but it is the tip uh, that is before us uh, in the coming weeks. That's right. Uh, Do you you wanna just make a comment there? Yes, please.
3: Yeah, okay. Uh, Well, I I think uh, in some cases it's actually the foundation because, you know, if uh, ever since in the 80s, Ronald Reagan uh, put a zero growth budget on WHO, which led, you know, to a lot of very dire consequences, uh, we have to, if we have an international organization for health, we have to fund it. And uh, there it is really the basis and I'm very glad to see that the German-French initiative for WHO reform actually starts also from the financing and, you know, says that the regular contributions, we have to pay for that organization and we have to stop thinking in peanuts, oh yes, you know, we'll raise it by 3% or something because you get what you pay for. And in some cases, you know, you really need it as the very basis of work. And then we have to think differently, you know, how should the financing organizations and remember, we have a number of new ones. We have regional ones, European Development Bank, just to name one. So there are, you know, other sources of finance. Obviously, there is a discussion, I think, this week between the WHO and uh, the G20 finance ministers, for example. But this has got to go broader. We need a new kind of global taxation system. We've talked about that frequently, but we have to address it. We can't keep talking ODA and going back to the same seven countries. Mm. You know, there's... uh, In the end, there's so much uh, each individual country can give. And, uh, you know, there's a private sector out there that has responsibility. And, you know, some of the figures we're talking about, we could get uh, with the blink of an eye if you look at how much Mark Zuckerberg increased in value uh, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. I think you know he could give us those thirty-five billion just like that. And remember um Ted Turner, who actually gave part of his um not that I'm saying, you know, philanthropy is our solution, please don't misunderstand that. But you know, there have been in the past responsible people such as Ted Turner who said, you know. And the UN Foundation, of course, is, is one of the things, but he, he went and he gave what at the time was an incredible amount of money uh, to the United Nations. And if somebody gave that to COVAX, we would be uh, in a, at oh, a awesome. new point and then find new regulatory mechanisms, as Stephen has said, which take a bit more time.
0: Thank you. I want to thank each of you. Um, really for a fulsome uh, discussion. You've really contributed enormously to our understanding of global public health at this this, this critical pivot moment. Um, I also want to thank uh, Dr. Uh, Tedros, uh, Director General of WHO, uh, and our four prior speakers, uh, Dr. Philpott, Dr. Bernstein, Dr. Nutt, Dr. Sam Nutt, sorry, Uh, and Dr. Uh, Rajasingham. Uh, And of course, uh, again, I wanna thank each of you for really uh, a fulsome and and thorough uh, discussion. Um, So panelists, uh, uh, I look forward to being in touch. Thank you. Thanks so much.